0: to they came from outer space a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world i'm filmmaker cameron kit also known on wrir as dj lilas and you're listening to WRIR lp 97.3 fm i'm here today with brian stillman to discuss the cult classic from 1975 Rollerball.
1: thanks for having me Ah, i love this movie.
0: I am so glad you helped me watch it. Uh, I feel like it relates so much to our current world. (laughs) Sadly.
1: Yeah, it hits a little close to home, um, and it's kind of scary to think about that. You know, not much has changed since it was made, nineteen seventy-five. You know, you'd hope there would have been some progress, but uh, only the leisure suits went away.
0: Yeah, and even those are coming back.
1: <laughs> we live in a, in a hellscape of, uh, of evil. Yeah, what can fashion.
0: I, say? I, I definitely feel like it was aggressively 70s, but we will get to that because the <laughs> futurism, I, whether they wanted to or not. So for those who are not aware of Brian Stillman or don't know his voice, you may know him by some of his work, a prolific collector and filmmaker Brian's known for his hand recently in producing or creating your- uh,
1: director of photo- a, a DP on movies that made us. DP. Um, it's, it's a complicated resume.
0: You really do? Um, I'm so sorry. I, you no, know, it's okay. You had it's a okay. hand in helping it come to be, but you I'm, were I'm a of photography. Also, same for Toys That Made Us. Yes.
1: Toys That Made Us, I'm a producer on it. I and see, that, that's right. that um, I was on from pretty early. Um, and then I'm a producer and director on documentary films, Plastic Galaxy, The Story of Star Wars Toys. Um, and with two partners, uh, Kelly Slagle and Seth Polanski, I did Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm currently working on two more documentaries because I'm a sucker for punishment. (laughs) One is on the history of Magic the Gathering called um, Igniting the Spark. We're in production on that. And then the other is As Yet Untitled Feature. Um, It's about a cartoon uh, executive, a children's television executive named Margaret Lesh, who most people have not heard of. But I guarantee you have heard of the things that she is responsible for. Um, So all sorts Batman of the weird Animated projects series
0: in the and X-Men and a couple other things. Very
1: Animaniacs, funny. Tiny Toons, her list is long and totally insane. It's awesome.
0: Well, Brian, your work with the Nacelle Company has really brought nostalgic content to us in a time where we really need it. And uh, I think today we're also going to wax nostalgic on this 70s futuristic sports classic. I also <laughs> would like to mention that you founder for X-Ray Films when you're not producing and you run a weekly D&D campaign in case people are wondering whether or not you were really committed um, to, the, <laughs> to the lifestyle. Oh. Uh, he's currently assembling his massive collection of toy robots, Ray guns, Star Trek, and Marvel ephemera, among other things, in his brand new apartment. And uh, you can learn more about Brian at brianstillman.nyc. That's Stillman, S-T-I-L-L-M-A-N. Cool. I think that's pretty good. So, Brian, why did you choose Rollerball?
1: You know, Rollerball is... A movie that, um, in in critical circles, I think stands pretty tall in the science fiction pantheon, but I don't think a lot of people um, have seen it. You know, mm-hmm. like like hardcore film fans and science fiction nerds and stuff like that. We've all seen it, but um, I, I think it flies under a lot of people's radar. And if they have heard of it recently, it's because of the abysmal remake and which we really just won't talk about. Um,
0: Except to say that it's very, very bad. I think it's has a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: It's very, very bad. And it it misses the point of the original entirely. Um, so, so I thought it'd be a cool one to look at. And then personally, I love it. I think it's yeah. great. I love the messaging behind it. I love the filmmaking behind it. The acting is a- amazing. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the story is just super compelling. In many ways it's very 1970s but in many ways it's kind of timeless and it Mm -hmm. kind of transcends the cliches of its era although not in fashion um
0: (laughs) i think norman jewison worked really hard to to make that happen and you can feel that effort to make it timeless right there are a lot of choices music was one of them right he was emulating kubrick and only choosing to have uh, classical music except for one scene at the party, right? Yep. So he was, trying, he was really making an effort, and I think that comes through. I do have to say, though, this is the last time I'll talk about the remake, did you know that the director of the remake went to federal prison due to an investigation resulting from the production of that movie? I did not. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: when I okay. talk about missing the point, I'm pretty sure he was funneling cash to create it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. It's
0: not fair to this movie.
1: No, you know? <laughs> no, I, it's, it's... Uh, and I want to I want to rescue Rollerball from I want to take this opportunity to rescue it from whatever people think might think it is. So, OK, here we go.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think put people probably I think it shares a lot. You mentioned the Pantheon. It shares a lot with movies like Robocop, where it, it kind of has this presentation in the the populist popular ethos of, oh, this is a, like a fun rock'em sock'em movie about action, when in fact it's just a vehicle for an anti-capitalist narrative. Right, like it's a where it, it's a criticism.
1: It really is. Although I think it is more um, the pacing is so different. You know, I think RoboCop, yeah. um, RoboCop, and The Running Man, um, yeah. things like that, are obvious comparison points. Um, and and like you and I talked about earlier, Death Race uh, two thousand. Yeah, um, and you um, know, the others, same year,
0: by the way. Yep,
1: nineteen seventy-five. But I think it is very much of its time. I mean, RoboCop is so extreme in its violence. You know, the whole scene where where Murphy is shot and gunned down. I mean, they blow his limbs off. I mean, it's horrifying. There's nothing like that really in Rollerball. The violence feels very much like like the violence you'd see in football, which was sort of Jewison's point. I mean, he, he had a problem with contact sports. He thought the whole thing was kind of barbaric. So I don't think he was going for anything more extreme than that. So it's, but from a messaging point of view and from a subversive point of view, um, and from a kind of undercutting expectations point of view, I agree with you completely. Um, it's a lot like roller, uh, like RoboCop. Um, they both even start with an R and an O.
0: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Or I mean, it reminded me of *Death Race* in that it was, you know, it seems like it's it's come it it feels like it was trying to break into the public. I hate to say, like it was like a it's Trojan horsing you with with critical thinking is Mm -hmm. really what it seems like. I know for me, the thing that makes this movie different from those other movies we mentioned is it seems like a true effort to focus on quality filmmaking, a true effort to focus on narrative. You mentioned you mentioned. Like there's cinematography, the, the quality of the performances and the pacing. It's like there's time spent making you think that you might be resistant to. So, I mean, my first question for you, Brian, is you you have this body of work that really is focused on nostalgia and, and rethinking what, you know, what made us. Right. How is this movie a movie that made you?
1: Um, interesting, because I came to it not late. I mean, I think the first time I saw it was in high school. And you know, I maybe late high school. I really got on a kick of exploring movies that um, were foundational for the things that I grew up on and that I uh, enjoyed. So. I was at this point, I was doing this with all sorts of science fiction. Um, I was doing it with books, too. I was digging through stuff like Arthur C. Clarke and Heinlein, all the really obvious ones, Asimov and Bradbury. But I was also discovering Alfred Bester, who's one of my all-time favorite authors. He wrote The Demolished Man, um, Stars My Destination. Oh,
0: I know. Um,
1: and, you're right. That's the one everyone's heard of. Well. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and, and it's a classic. I mean, it's, it's an absolute classic. He won the very first Hugo Award for The Demolished Man in 1950. Oh man, it was either 1952 or 1953. I normally know this, but um, it was a retroactive Hugo Award. Um, but yeah, so I was uncovering all this stuff and I did the same thing with movies. And Rollerball, I didn't really know much about it, but the 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 VHS box was awesome. You know, it's James Caan with his fist. Well, of course there's no video here, but he's holding his fist up with this spiked glove and yes. this weird helmet. And it's this really great artwork, this like, heavy use of design it's not just illustration yeah. and as like i don't know what this is but it sounds pretty awesome
0: it's an iconic poster and also to me notable for the lack of roller skates in it <laughs> like there's no <laughs> roller image but the You're image right. is very striking i actually have in my notes i have a scan of the one of the original VHS tapes i mm. like what it wrote on the back so so that item grabbed you and you were in high school when you watched it for
1: the first yeah time. And I was really struck by um, how different it felt from the science fiction movies I was used to. At that point, you know, it was Terminator. It was Alien. It was Aliens. You know, I, this is the same year I was born. I was born in 75. So um, the movies I grew up on were early 80s. You know, like I, my parents, they took me to see Aliens in the movie theater. All right. So I was
0: them for getting into this no choice. <laughs> Oh, yeah.
1: And I loved it. You know, I had no idea what it was about. I hadn't seen Alien yet. You know, I was too young, but I was just hurled into this stuff. But that's the kind of vibe I grew up on. Um, I was also doing things like watching USA up All Night, um, which was hosted by Gilbert Gottfried. And um, that's where I, I saw the movie that I almost picked for this, which was um, uh, uh, Night of the Comet which is an amazing B-movie that is absolutely underrated. But um, I saw Rollerball and I suddenly saw all the things that it it was underlying, all the movies that kind of built upon it. Like I, I immediately understood, because it's not really hard to see. I immediately understood how The Running Man, which I loved, um, was built on this RoboCop, like you mentioned. So... I was just really struck by that and really intrigued, but it was such a different way of presenting science fiction from what I was used to. It was much more contemplative and meditative um, with these moments of visceral violence. And, and even though they don't compare to the violence, like we said in RoboCop, they hit really hard because they're mixed in with these sort of very quiet moments of like, of, of, corporate weird corporate intrigue and and john right. houseman being all blustery and i don't know it, it just really long, hit long me parties
0: and riding riding horses in the woods while you think about what the corporation wants from you um, right
1: and then let's go blow up some trees
0: it, it gives you so much time not only to get inside the mind of the main character and try and like it, it also gives you a little bit of respect because it doesn't tell you what to think it forces you to try and figure out like there's a lot of time where you're confused just like him and i think mm that's rare in sci-fi you have to spend so much time uh in exposition and i really appreciated the way exposition was worked into this movie It they
1: doled yeah. it out very naturally you know mm-hmm. it was very much you know heinlein always said i don't have to explain to you how the door works i'm just going to say the door dilated mm-hmm. and you'll freaking figure it out mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. you know the whole scene where they explain like they don't give you the info dump well they give you a bit of an info they dump. Do, they do they the do the corporate it twice. wars yeah, yeah they do
0: it twice you know and I get it but, but it's, still it's subtle you it's have still to subtle. you have to know so like I think I appreciated more Cletus than uh Bartholomew because Bartholomew just said it he's like remember the corporate wars but Cletus has a line where he's like I can't remember who owns Indianapolis again yeah that line is so well done right like the, that's better to me say, like oh there's only seven corporations which one owns the city again this like very potential Margaret Atwood future. Mm. I don't know if you've read uh, Adams Matt Adams series, but that's no. very much the. It's, it's not the only. She's not the only person to plan on a, basically a future where, unless you work for Amazon, you don't get to live in Amazon City mm. kind of situation. Shouldn't yeah. say Amazon, but you know, it's we're not we're kind of on that path, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> I mean,
1: you know, <laughs> Disney has their little planned community that kind of broke free, but um, you know, it, the other thing is. He, he says that, but it's part of a conversation they're just having around dinner. And, you know, um, Jonathan and Cletus and... Do we ever get that woman's name? The one that he basically dumps oh, in the beginning? Oh,
0: no, I can't remember her name.
1: Um, it wasn't Daphne, because she's the one who comes later. Yeah, the
0: other one. Yeah, and women it, are it treated like weird. objects in this movie.
1: <laughs> well, but in a very deliberate way. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think... So, but the fact that they're just having this casual conversation that conveys so much information to you as the audience, I think, is the cleverness of um, Harrison's writing. Um, And and it works well. It makes it feel a little less like, I'm going to give you a lecture. And like you said, Houseman does lecture, but that's also within his character. I mean, he's not there to have a conversation with Jonathan. He's there to lecture to him.
0: Yeah, he's his boss.
1: And kick him out. Like...
0: That actually reminds me, I skipped something I normally don't skip, which is a little bit of an intro. So if you've been listening this far and you have no idea what Rollerball is, let me just give you a quick overview. (laughs) (laughs) You can probably infer it has something to do with rolling and balls. Uh, Released in 1975 for United Artists, Rollerball is a tale of skating, killing and standing up to a violent culture where wars no longer exist. But Rollerball does. Directed by Norman Jewison, who you may know from Moonlight and Jesus Christ Superstar. Super similar movies. So really close. Our hero is Jonathan E., leader of the Houston Rollerball team who's been playing for 10 years. He's played by James Caan. You may know him from the movie Misery or, if you're younger, Elf. He's the dad. In this dystopia actually set in 2018, a complete totalitarian corporate rule runs all where no individual is greater than the whole. But Jonathan E., who's quickly becoming a folk hero in this bloody sport, threatens that and must face the consequences as he has asked it. So that's really the journey of the film is we follow this hero who has kind of made a name for himself, despite the sport basically being created to remove that possibility. Right there. It's meant to remind you that everything individually, individuality is bad. And as he's being told to retire, he starts to question things that he'd never questioned before. And we go along with him on that journey. That's why it's so introspective. It's not being handed to you
1: right. like
0: corporation bad. You know, he has to really do some investigating
1: and in fact they 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 force you to kind of really question it yourself because there's there's no poverty you know there's there everyone's satisfied everyone has access to luxury goods some more than others but but no one's really suffering and all they and hausman literally says this all they ask you to do is not question the management's decisions and it's such a good line it's like, is, it's, but it's a gilded cage. So is it really worth the trade-off? What I find interesting is Jonathan, he wasn't even looking to break out of this. He was perfectly happy. Yeah. He had zero problems with this situation. He's not some revolutionary who, you know, the running man. You know, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger who starts off as part of the system. He's totally screwed over. And that's when he realizes the system's corrupt and he's going to tear it all down. Jonathan never has that moment. Everything's perfectly fine. He just doesn't want to be fired.
0: I would argue... He's a little mad that his wife was taken away because she was too hot. That's she true. Was, she was handed off to a an executive, and and you, then then you learn that women are basically handmaids that are like yeah. passed around as tools. That was kind of my first moment being like, well, maybe I wouldn't enjoy it so much in the future. He's <laughs> so
1: bothered like he, by that, he's but a little he,
0: bit bothered by that, and yeah. But it's going. not
1: enough to push him to any sort of he. No, yeah, because he got a
0: replacement hot wife right away. That's
1: right. That, right. Like, you know, so he's not looking to make waves. He's. Mm-hmm totally fine with this and he doesn't what's what's interesting is that you know look if this was a a typical movie they try and fire him and he would get all pissed off and rant and rave but in this they try and fire him and instead it gets him to start asking questions and -hmm. it's those questions that lead him to want to revolt i mean you get the impression that it might not even happen like You know, he he got to score that last point in rollerball. Who knows what he's going to do after this? I don't know if he's going to lead a revolution.
0: The ending is so supremely interesting to me. And yes, I forgot to mention my spoiler alert uh, Mm. intro as well. I I like to say that we are going to spoil the ending of the movie. Um, It ends with him scoring a point. But uh, there are studies that show light spoilage actually increases your enjoyment of a film. So I I highly encourage you to finish listening before you watch. However, if you want to turn off the radio or wherever you're listening, you can always find us on Apple or where we find your podcast if they Came from Outer Space. Uh, you can watch this film pretty much anywhere uh, if you take a take a look online. But you're right, you're right though, Brian. It's not as popular as I think it deserves um, for the amount of impact it clearly had. Um, yeah. I'm gonna let's take a quick break and I'm gonna come back and I want to talk about rollerball the sport a little bit and hmm. get your thoughts.
1: Jonathan E. That's the name. Houston players come and go, but the champion plays on.
0: we are listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM. I am Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Brian Stillman talking about the 1975 classic,
1: Rollerball. Rollerball. Jonathan, Rollerball.
0: Jonathan E. Jonathan I His like last Tokyo name
1: David. may or may not be
0: Evans. Evans, yeah. I like that, I like that that's given to you. I, like, I think those are the little moments that remind me in William Harrison's script that I, what I think is so important in sci-fi is just like a respect for my intelligence. Like, let me piece it together. I want to participate, yeah. right? I want to be, I want to, you know, it's basically a mystery. I have to say my favorite part is the AI that's just a like a fish tank. That is my right. favorite. <laughs> that's actually predictive because the next time I saw that was Ex Machina. I haven't seen somebody talk hmm. about an AI being wetware until then, so it clearly had some impact. But Brian, tell um, you know, we both have people in our lives who play roller derby. So yep. I was certainly thinking about that. I actually just watched a documentary about roller derby at mm-hmm. uh, the Brooklyn Film Festival. And it's a, you know, that is a violent sport in and of itself. Um, tell us a little bit about the rules of the game and then uh, a, a bit about the controversy, especially from Jewison's part of view about this, the sport.
1: Um. The rules of rollerball or roller derby?
0: Rollerball, please. Okay. <laughs> we don't have time for so the derby.
1: you have, if I remember correctly, you have 10 players on a side. Um, and uh, a number of them are scorers. They're, they're skaters. And their job is to catch this steel ball that is racing around this circular banked track. They're on roller skates. And there, they have to get the steel ball and jam it into a small goal yeah. uh, on, on, on the side of the track. Um, you also have defenders who are there to kind of protect you. And then you have three motorcycle drivers who are there to um, basically help propel the skaters around the, the track. There's a handle on the back of the, the motorcycle yeah. that they can grab onto. Um, When the movie starts, there are a number of rules. It is a contact sport, but it's not actually that crazy. Um, You are not, if you're on the motorcycle, you're not allowed to run people over, you know?
0: It does happen.
1: It does happen. It does happen. But there are penalties if you do it, you know? So it's the rules state early on, there are basic kind of things in place that, yeah, it's dangerous, but maybe not more dangerous than football, especially as we understand today how dangerous it can be. Um, and there are penalties if you break these rules, which doesn't mean they don't, but yeah. you're not supposed to. Um, but, of course, as the game progresses, the rules change, yeah. and we can get into that. Um, Jewison was very much against contact sports. He thought right. they were ridiculous. He thought they were violent. He thought they were brutish. and And this was... His way of kind of commenting on that. The irony, of course, is that fans of the movie approached him, um, and of course, TV executives, corporates, came to him and they wanted to make this a real sport, which horrified oh, him. Yes. The other thing that I think is funny, though, is that apparently the cast and crew would play rollerball, yeah. <laughs> albeit without the violence. I mean, I'm assuming that they were not beating each other up, but yeah. they would actually play a sort of simplified version of it um, during downtime. Which is not that big a deal if you think about it. If you're not beating each other up, it actually looks kind of fun.
0: Yeah, that's what makes the game so. That's what makes the game and the movie so interesting. Is one, you're able to ingest and understand a whole new sport just yep. without without being told. Again, without like they really don't have uh, like a commentator giving you the play with. But you learn it from the shooting and editing, which was so impressive,
1: mm. right?
0: Like they teach you a sport just <laughs> so you can have something to have a baseline. But the fact that it got away from him is so interesting like i was watching the interview from 1975 and of course one of the questions is so you think the sport's gonna take off as if they thought that the point of the movie was to create a new sport right so people misinterpreted it and when he was interviewed about yeah hey i've heard that people have been actually playing the sport on breaks he was like i we've already had a few accidents so the whole time he was frightened right i was surprised that i couldn't find much on injuries because I didn't know that this was one of the first movies to actually show the cast and crew of the um, stunt crew in a movie's yeah. titles. I didn't know that that was something you didn't do. But boy, howdy, there are a lot of tumbles and rolls, and there's a tremendous amount of stunt work done. But I just thought that was really interesting, right? That he he's using the sport and Harrison, the scriptwriter, to an extent as, uh, you know, criticism. When a lot of people took the kind of face value view, like, oh, it seems cool. Like, it's very Well,
1: American. it's almost inevitable, though, because... To make it work, Jewison had to, like you said, you have to convey the sport in a way people understand it, in a way that feels organic. And if you're at all a good filmmaker, you don't want to be lame and have like an info dump and all that stuff. So the problem is when you do that, you end up presenting the sport very realistically. We don't get any dialogue between characters for the first 13 minutes. This thing opens with the sport and it's shot the way it would be shot with a, with very few exceptions, there are no shots in there that a normal sports production couldn't get. Yeah. Um, there are a few where, like, there's one shot where the skaters kind of skate over the cameraman and, like, clearly, okay, that's not <laughs> – you couldn't yeah. really do that. It's a great shot, and they cut away from it so quickly. Um, but most of it – and and the only dialogue you get is the sports announcer. Again, like you say, not explaining the game – but talking about it as if it assumes you're a fan and you already know what's exactly. going on. Yeah. All the other sound is muted. And you, mm-hmm. there are shots of the crowd and you see people interacting just like you would pre-game at a baseball game. Um, and there is the music. I mean, it opens with... Um, with uh, Tocata. I had to look this up tokata and yep. fugue in D I, minor. I Bach. looked it
0: up too, yeah. You might, you all know they this song, open
1: with horror music, which in I and of itself, yes, I mean, that it tells you everything you need to know about what you're going to experience instead of opening with like upbeat you know Call rock <laughs> right yes that or we will rock you or all the things that sports <laughs> normally open with they open up with a dirge so that's there you go yeah, already set the tone
0: an empty space i found that yet yeah, like it's a very clear choice right to say i'm opening with like it's um gosh who did it's bach
1: yeah and well, they think it's Bach.
0: Apparently, there's Bach. a whole
1: there's a whole story there that I'm not in, I don't know enough about classical music. Comedy. And then they
0: open with our corporate anthem, which is basically <laughs> just like the most boring church sounding song I've ever heard. Which actually, I don't know if you know this, influenced Devo to write a song called Devo yeah. Corporate Anthem. Yeah. So I I find like all that subtlety in the use of classical music to influence what you're th- thinking and feeling was really smart.
1: Did um, you catch the trick with the corporate music mm-hmm. in the very end?
0: Wait, so it was starts it with
1: it's a corporate anthem, but when they're in New it's either New York or Tokyo, I forget which one now, um, they say, we're gonna open with the corporate hymn. And I've been sitting here, try, I never noticed that before. I don't know if that's intentional or if someone just didn't pay attention to continuity or if there's something I should be reading into that, that it goes from anthem to hymn I think I might be reading into it a little too much, but it, it was sounds
0: interesting. like a hymn. Um, it sounds like one of the more boring hymns, if I'm being honest. But I thought that was like a really interesting choice, right? That the, just to remind you that the corporation has kind of merged with church and state, right? Yeah. That it is. It is the sum total of everything in your life, and that there you go. You that works. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love the use of music. I will say his, you know, something that comes up. The, his, to me, his statement was about, the, he was very upfront about this. It's about the opiate of the masses. He said, this is a film to do, an interesting film to do in a political aspect. It was the only futuristic movie Jewison ever did. It was a film about a world where political systems have failed and multinational corporations have taken over. It deals with violence used as entertainment for the masses, which goes back to the circus maximus, i.e. bread and circuses. I think when you use violence for entertainment, you're getting pretty low on the human scale. You're absolutely right. So he was saying that But he made a movie that uses violence for entertainment, didn't he?
1: I know. There's a great irony there. And, you know, I don't know how you get around that. Because if you're going to make a good movie commenting on violence, well, then you're entertaining people with violence. Unless you make something where people are just, they spend the whole two hours horrified by what they're seeing. And I don't know if I really want to sit through that he
0: did it he so here's the thing he did it as well he did it almost like he's writing an essay right mm. there's no way you can pretend that he wasn't making a comment whereas when quinn tarantino says oh no i'm commenting that violence is bad it's really hard to believe him right it's like, yes okay is it though because every even the sound design makes me feel like i'm having a great time you know right like, <laughs> this movie the sound design is reminding you that like someone's really getting run over by roller blade, or roller skates and it's like his yep. bones are breaking you know like that moment it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel happy. The music doesn't jump, you know. No. You're just, you're just suddenly reminded that oh yeah, the ball is going 150 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour, right? Like oh wow. That's there's also good no, effort.
1: there's also no incidental music. There's no music there to create a mood. It the only time there's music, is as far as I could tell, was when there would be music there. You know, it's very like Dogma 95. You know, where if there's really music there, there's music there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's music during the 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 games, you know, before and after and at like kind of transition moments, like the organist playing along. There is music at the corporate party that they all attend. There is music in the lobby of the corporation when he goes to meet with John Hausman,
0: right. uh,
1: Bartholomew. Um, there isn't any music, though, that's kind of just you know, in the background designed to manipulate your emotions. And to me, even though this movie is super hyper stylized, the combination of the realistic sports and the sort of naturalistic acting gives it to me something of a documentary feel. Like there is a verite, a mm, cinema verite yes, feeling absolutely. to this, even though it, it it always feels stylized. I mean, it never feels completely re, uh, um, like... Um, uh uh spontaneous but it doesn't feel there's a naturalism to the whole thing that somehow is juxtaposed against this high high level of stylization that to me works really well and is hard to pull off um yeah. kubrick does it i mean 2001 i think in a lot of ways does it um, well, that,
0: that he's so clearly influenced and the cool thing about it is yeah. he he doesn't hide behind it he's like yeah Kubrick was a big influence. It's okay. I was only six
1: years old, you know, or yeah. seven years old when you know when two thousand one came out.
0: How could you not be influenced?
1: It was only by it? a few years earlier, you know. So, and that's a few years when this came out, and however long production was, so it had to have been on his mind. Um, but I always found that interesting. The use of natural sound, you know, How it's you it's, up, yeah. it's dialogue in the background, and then he just pulls up little bits of it, you know, in the party scene, you hear little snippets of conversation all around you and they all tell you something about the world, um, without mm. being info dumps. Um, you know, you hear a brief moment of like corporate, you know, workings from that one woman executive who's out on like the porch and you hear little snippets just here and there, almost like if you're walking through a party if you're making your way through and the rest is just this kind of low-level hum or silence he uses silence so well not quite as well as kubrick does i think kubrick was the master of sound design and the shining i mean Mm. sound itself should have gotten a credit in that movie but (laughs) um but aside from that i think juicin does an amazing job with it um it's little elements like that that i think make this movie so powerful I I completely agree. I mean,
0: there were moments, there's only a few moments where I noticed the silence. There was a moment mm-hmm. where he's speaking to De- his old wife, Ella, his ex-wife, I guess, and he's like looking Odd at Adams. her, yeah, and there's like, a and those moments of silence force you to be with your own thoughts, so it it's just like, the movie feels very intentional and not like a popcorn feature in that way, oh, and I yeah. find that really interesting that you, you connect it to, you know, uh, documentary, because that's traditionally where you spend your time, so I also wanted to ask, you know, the cinematographer, Douglas Slocum, he's also was a cinematographer for movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, some of um, uh, Jewison's other movies like Jesus Christ Superstar. But what did you notice about the cinematography as somebody who has that on, on one of their many hats?
1: Um, you know, I was struck by... <sighs> The camera takes a lot of interesting angles. There's there's one moment so a lot of zooms lot of first zooms. of all. Not dolly shots, zooms. They're just like pushing in. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting ones that feel like on paper they feel like they'd be really awkward, but they're actually really cool. So when when he's having when Jonathan is having dinner with Cletus, so his co, his his trainer Cletus um and kind of Jonathan's Inside man, who he's hoping can dig up some information for him as he uncovers these these problems. Um, they're having dinner early on, and when Jonathan first mentions that he he thinks there's a problem, something's going on, the camera is Jonathan is between the camera and Cletus. You've got like John, like it's looking over Jonathan's shoulder at Cletus's face and his his face drops a little, you know as he hears what Jonathan's saying, and the camera zooms in, it pushes in over Jonathan past Jonathan, and really tight on cletus and It's weird because Jonathan's kind of in the way of the shot, mm-hmm. and yet somehow it works it's i I'm not enough of a cinematographer to really pull apart why this shot works and why it doesn't just feel like <laughs> weird. It starts
0: like, you out of the moment. You normally would think a, a zoom yeah. for those of us who for those who haven't, you know, done camera work in the past, the zoom means you're doing it manually with the lens or you're actually pushing on the camera to choose. And you might remember if you've ever used a digital camcorder, how aggressive those zooms might have been, right, in your childhood. Whereas a Dolly shot means you're on a physical uh board or something on wheels that's moving in. Right. So generally, your perception is a lot more aggressive of emotion. Well, but it's right? also your
1: perspective, it's less naturalistic. Your perspective changes when you dolly. You know, so if you are stepping through a doorway, the rest of the room on the other side of the door opens up to you. If you're simply taking a zoom, is much more like cropping in on a photo. If you, because your perspective never changes, if you zoom in on that doorway, you still can't see what's on the other side of that doorway. You're just bringing the picture closer to your eyes. And it feels very unnatural. Mm-hmm. So that push in, that, that zoom on Cletus's face, and they do it a few other times. They do it on like the scoreboard a few times. There's this weird shot to the, the abbreviation for Houston on the scoreboard where it's like a strange insert where they're just like, boop. Hey, just so you don't forget, it's Houston. Okay. I, even <laughs> I in not everywhere them like useful,
0: and I was waiting for it when they were fighting against New York when they're in the final battle because I forgot what it was, and I like, kept trying to pause it to be like, wait, where are they going? Like, I wanted to,
1: see, <laughs> I wanted to
0: see the scoreboard. Like I treated it almost like I was watching a sports game. Like at the end, yeah. it's really interesting. But no, like, it, it is surprising to me because like I noticed those zooms, but they never yeah. pulled me out of the moment because they were always okay. at a moment of introspection for the character. So you're like feeling their thoughts. They're like, mm. oh, they're thinking. Somebody's thinking. Or they're, they're taking yeah. something in for something's like hitting them. Um, it's artificial,
1: too- but that artificiality, you know, it's the equivalent of like a shot in an old horror movie where the key light is aggressively like framing their eyes, like Dracula's eyes or something. There's nothing realistic about it, but it conveys a lot. And like we're, humans are able to read stylization. We get it. We're not totally yeah. close. Sometimes and in this case, it just that. really works. Well, okay, fair. <laughs> but... but yeah. Um so that struck that jumped out at me. Um and uh you know there's just it's so very 70s in its filmmaking style, you know, and like the the saturation, the colors, the graininess of the film. I love it all though. I mean, it's, when I first saw the movie there was enough, you know, I was I was aware enough as a as an audience member to understand um areas where it transcended the 70s and areas where it was very much of its era. And I just kind of assumed at the time, well, that's just filmmaking of the time. You know, you just can't, sometimes you can't escape your own anachronisms. You know what I mean?
0: I think the Um, best supporting actor is James Caan's hairy chest. I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) say.
1: Well, but that's the thing. The more I've seen this movie, I've seen it a whole bunch of times at this point. I mean, it has to have been deliberate. Everything in this movie is deliberate. There's no way Jewison was just like, eh, whatever. Looks like the 70s. So it's obvious that that was going on. And I think maybe you're right. You know, I never really thought of that before. But the the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, maybe it's a situation where, like, aesthetically, things just got locked in. At a certain point, and there is no more innovation. He did say visually
0: that for him, Jules, and I assume for Harrison, one of the big influences is late is Rome at the end and collapse of the empire. So mm. that's really what it felt like is that like the seventies costumes, especially the women's costumes from the party, are kind of these draped long dresses. The men yeah. are, are wearing traditional outfits, but it's kind of inescapable <laughs> that, that that relationship is. You know, I think seventies fashion is garish. And Great, but love, you know, so like it definitely. They were leaning more into the luxury side, right? Everything was leather and leather and glitzy, right? You fall and of course, the person <coughs> we're following in this in this corporate world is somebody who's benefited greatly from it. We don't see right. necessarily anybody who's who's not benefited greatly. That's what's so interesting about it, right, you said? I mean, I guess the women, let's be real. Daphne, well,
1: poor Daphne. <laughs> yeah, and think this is, I think around. we have to have a conversation about the women, but before we do, just to say on the idea of fashion and stuff, we do see the crowds. We do see yeah. the crowds, and they're all dressed in, like, basically T-shirts, jeans... Yeah. Baseball hats. Ball caps, yeah. And, and that That's feels okay. very kind of like, okay, whatever, you know? So I think that sort of weird, formalized, high fashion, whatever, is really part of the world. And maybe it's that overly decadent world that Jonathan kind of trucks in, you know, it's he's a sports star, he's a mega star, and the executives are the elite and powerful. And so maybe that's what we're seeing but the average person isn't going to wear weirdo flowing futuristic robes you know it's just like you still wear jeans and a t-shirt when all is said and done
0: and they all seem pretty happy Uh, you're listening to they came from outer space here on wrir i'm cameron kitt i'm speaking with brian stillman about the 1975 movie rollerball
1: you know how the game serves us it has a definite social purpose Nations are bankrupt, gone, no poverty, no sickness. Man
0: has accomplished what he'd always craved. Corporate society was an
1: inevitable destiny for good life, a centuries-old dream. you better do as you told, Jonathan, that's all I have to say.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the ladies. Um, yeah. I, have a, I generally have a section on these where I try and at least check in on the Bechtel test, pass or fail. This is a hard eh, fail.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. From
0: the beginning, this is a movie about a sport played by men and a man's journey in his world of men, right? And, of course, the women do support his, I guess, identity, but all women in this movie are sexual objects. You did mention there's one or two women who are at least having semi-corporate conversations, and there's a woman yeah. who's a clerk. At and the, the library, you know?
1: And Daphne's a spy.
0: Yeah, but she's also a prostitute.
1: Well, <laughs> like, she is. She is. But she's, a spy. She's, being used, is a spy. she's being used actively as a weapon. Like, yes. in every instance... Okay, we don't know the deal with the corporate executive women. Um, and in fact, we do know one of the, the nine, at least, is a woman...
0: That's true. So affirmative, yeah, and and I thought speaking of that, I thought that the one thing they did get right about the future is it seemed pretty integrated racially.
1: Oh was yeah, something
0: I don't know. like in, in a movie like Death Race two thousand where women were equal, there were no people of color. So like you yeah. know, it seems like it was kind of hit or miss in the seventies how they predicted. Right. It.
1: <laughs> no, this definitely seemed to get that right. I think it definitely. Um, I mean, look, we can say well, clearly women are are equals because one of the rulers of the world is a woman but the story never delves into that the story only treats women as tools they're Mm -hmm. either and and tools for manipulation Mm -hmm. they're all there the only women we're exposed to as characters in this thing are there to manipulate jonathan Um, they are either there as sexual beings to just keep him happy Mm -hmm. or they're there to influence his decision-making when his wife finally does come back to him. She's there to tell him to just back off and accept the world for what it is. Um, Or they're there as spies or to undercut him like Daphne is. Um, And that's, not the best. <laughs> I, I think mean, that's kind
0: of the first, that's the first clue he gets as he connects the dots that things are not right in Wonderland, yeah. right? Is that, and then you and the audience does, that's as true. Well, right? Is that, well, maybe this corporate future where everyone's happy isn't so wonderful because true love doesn't really seem like it's factored in, right? It seemed uh, like he fell in love with Ella, but we're not sure how they met. And that more or less the insinuation is that relationships are more or less orchestrated by the government. Right? Or at and least at favorite. that level. Yeah. I I don't get
1: the impression that the people in the stands, because you see lots of women in the stands enjoying the sport, I don't get the impression that they have the same relationship with other people that these elites do. Um, And that in and of itself is telling, you know what I mean? If the highest aspirations come with these sort of weird relationships, then what's that mean? You know what I mean? Like, if if the aspirational goals to be an executive or to be a a rollerball star mean that your relationships are all transactional or the women in your life are all basically, like I said, tools. And again, there's an implication in the movie that that's not the case, that women might have their own boy toys, you know, lying around. They get to shoot
0: powerful guns sometimes, too. There you go. But
1: but from a story point of view it doesn't give you that and i think i think you you know there's a difference between a failure in the world building which might not be there and a failure in the storytelling which i think you know we never see women as coaches Like, why couldn't they be coaches? Why couldn't... There's, like, a dozen characters in this movie. It (laughs) was
0: 1975.
1: Well, and that's the thing, you know, the limitations, um, which are the failures in storytelling, even if we say, well, but from a world-building point of view, clearly women are empowered. That's great, but that's not the story. You didn't tell me the story about the one woman in the nine who gets up there and the, like, 19 people she killed along the way and all the cool, badass stuff she did. That's not the story we're given. So... It's very much a product of its time, which isn't an excuse, but is probably an explanation.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I, mean, I mean, Jewison movie- went on to make movies about strong women.
0: Yeah. And he, he, and truck, he, so. and he also, I think I, re- I was reading about how in nineteen ten years before this, he made a movie with Sidney Poitier that was profoundly, it was called In the Heat of the Night, no, 1967. Yeah about a Philadelphia detective recruited by a redneck Southern sheriff. So he was like purposefully interested in, in pushing taboo. So I don't distrust yeah. him as not a feminist or I don't, but you know, William Harrison wrote this as a short for Esquire magazine first
1: yeah. and yeah. then
0: developed it as a script. So it's a, you know, it's a story kind of for men, not really in a bad way. Um, and that's okay. Like I, I, I think for the compared to a movie like Robocop or even running man, I I still felt more fulfilled. I'll be honest, in terms of like how much was available for me. And that's, yeah. I often am pretty darn critical, even about my favorite movies about representation. Um, I think
1: that's fair. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's
0: it's good reading things through a different lens is how we make you know how we make an understanding of our own world today, right? That's well, why think, it's interesting to rewatch this now.
1: I think maybe the difference, and and I'm saying this as a white male in his forties, so big grain of salt. And if you disagree with this, I want to know. But I think maybe the difference between the way women are treated in RoboCop, with the exception of um, Murphy's partner, um, who's, who's
0: a main character, you know,
1: yeah, yeah. But, but also a cop. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's a whole other whole nother conversation. <laughs> but but ignoring that, I think the difference between this and the way the rest of the women are treated in that movie, particularly, um, is that the treatment, the way women are, are presented in Rollerball is very deliberate and you're not supposed to like it. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to feel problematic. You know, the way the handmaid's tale does, you're not supposed to walk away going like sweet. The future looks awesome. You're supposed to say this is messed up.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: And, and maybe that's where the difference lies um, Mm -hmm. in that. This is an indictment of that. It's not anyone involved in this movie. I don't think I hope it's not them saying, like, "Yeah, who cares? Like, yeah. is so deliberate. It's, I don't know, but I don't know.
0: You, it lets you come to your own conclusion. So, for, yeah. for instance, the, there's only about 10 minutes of the film total where James Kahn is in any way interacting with libraries or the librarians or, or finding yeah. out information. But in that time, you find out that there are no books, and mm. that all books available are summarized by a computer. Hmm. And the computer, it, it turns out, is a total narc who works for the man. <laughs>
1: Like and is insane. And And forgot
0: the 13th century, right? So like all like the subtlety with which information is doled out is led to is you slowly begin to believe that oh maybe it's not so great, even though your character is one of the people who has kind of arguably one of the best lives, right? He's this like huge superstar and he loves his sport, right? He loves. He
1: says it twice. I love Uh, this game.
0: I love this game, which you know is a little weird for how much he apparently has killed people (laughs) doing it. (laughs) it's like apparently he had nine deaths in one game or he put nine people out
1: out yeah i'm not sure
0: how many he killed but
1: right um, he Um, definitely
0: kills people during the movie on on
1: that's the implication anyway
0: yeah you see the red blinking dot go out
1: right but i don't know if that means death or just means out of the game
0: right just like many things in the movie it's a little ambiguous that's why i appreciate it i like i like not being handed everything because it's not really watching you know, mm-hmm. like, you want to have an active participation. So what, yeah,
1: go ahead. You, you know, um, something you said that I found that just made me think of this there in in reading up on this movie, there was a bunch of negative reviews when it came out. And one of them uh, said that it felt like um, James Caan was not comfortable in his role of Jonathan E. And I find that really funny because I think he's completely comfortable in the role. I think Jonathan E. is not comfortable with his role as Jonathan E. He, mm. As these things crumble around him, he's less and less comfortable with this position he's found himself in. He's less and less comfortable with the world he's in. He's less and less sure of how it's all supposed to work, what he's supposed to get out of it, what his relationships are supposed to be. I think that discomfort we're seeing is... Jonathan E.'s discomfort. Because I think James Kahn did a amazing job. I was talking to a friend, so and I said, you know, he brought all the sensitivity of his role in Brian's song yes. and combined it with all the violence of Sonny Corleone. I can't and imagine you who else Jonathan he would e. play.
0: Yeah, like, he's the perfect person cast for this, he's right? great. He did apparently play football when he went to school. Like, he was, oh, yeah. before Brian, like, you know, he was a little bit of an athlete, so he's pulling from somewhere. And hmm. and also has that sensitivity. I think the most important thing is when you can read emotion on their face, right? Like oh. he has, his 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 blank stare is conveyed so much.
1: Yeah, they really do. Those eyebrows, man, should
0: And that hair yeah, chest. chest.
1: Okay. <laughs> there there it. are a lot of unzipped um <laughs> yeah. leisure suits in this movie. And, and he
0: unzips them on screen. I mean
1: It's Look, all I can think of is global warming has gotten to the point where it's just so hot out. You've got to air those things out.
0: I was going to ask you, why is this a good movie to watch now? But I think we've already answered that. So <laughs>
1: for... so many, so many reasons. Um, <laughs> you know what, though? But it, But here's the thing. We're talking about all this messaging. We're talking about all this deep meaning and everything that it conveys. But it's also a fun movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, it's fun to watch his journey. I mean, this whole thing is not this slow dismal drive of him unraveling, you know, I mean, it's the pacing is it's not, you know, our typical action movie of today, but it's not slow. It doesn't drag. Um, it it moves. It's two hours, but you don't feel them. Um, at least I don't. You know, the the more the more quieter, the quieter moments don't slow anything up there's always something happening whether it's information that you're gleaning whether it's characters interacting whether it's 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 realizations coming to pass it's all there on the screen so the moments they move by and and i find that it's very satisfyingly constructed um
0: it just gives you something like you said, not not a typical. You don't you don't get a long five to ten minute conversation between a husband and ex wife. You don't get to see those often in these action movies. So the pacing, I think, is really important. Mm-hmm. What would you say? What would you say is a really good reason? Well, about five minutes left. It's a good reason for people, not just filmmakers, to revisit this movie right now, twenty twenty
1: one. Um, being able to see how you can layer a message without. Hammering someone over the head in with a movie that is action packed, that is, you know, visceral, I think is a great lesson. Um, I think these days a lot of movies, and I'm all for a movie with a message, and I'm, you know, movies with progressive messages I think are necessary because I think you need to reach audiences. And taking an action movie and cramming it full of progressive messages I think are good because it's a way to reach the masses. But You can all, there's a lot of ways to do that. You could literally have a character jump up on a soapbox and declare, you know, whatever this great thing is. Or you can do it sort of like Jewison did it, where it it all comes through. Like you can't possibly miss the message in this movie unless you're deliberately like- I don't know if some
0: people want to play volleyball, though. They did.
1: Okay, fair. (laughs) You can deliberately miss it, but I think anyone with half a brain watching this movie kind of gets it.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: And understanding that you can do that without having to rely on the soapbox moment, without having to rely on things that disrupt the storytelling because you're like, oh yeah, don't forget my message. I think is a valuable lesson being able to balance a contemplative movie with an action movie mm-hmm. I think is 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 great um and he does it wonderfully um, understanding that a an underlying message to a movie is valuable. you know what I mean like that there can be subtext to a movie um I think is valuable um all those things they don't you know what it is there's not enough chest hair anymore
0: that is honestly. Honestly, honestly, the truth I mean I'm, you I mean like I found myself like deeply thinking about his gold necklaces like twining his <laughs> like, Wow, this movie is really getting
1: I have to ask you something because I made a note about this, and because you like I make documentaries and mm-hmm. you make narrative movies, and I feel that in this movie, this is a place where those two things converge. The home movies of his wife were the most well constructed well shot well, anythinged home movies I have ever seen to the point where impossible, impossible. Yeah, I, I Every was shot together, was perfect. I
0: thought it was put together by a crew that there was. I thought that was like a gift to him from the corporation. Like
1: oh, maybe, maybe. Or, All or, I could or, think honestly, of was my home was, movies never look like that.
0: <laughs> and like, I'm sorry, but there's telephoto lens zooms of like 200 feet away, right? like right. The, To me, it felt like um a little voyeuristic, right? So the shots almost felt a little bit like oh, that's true they were coming from the city cams but then there's all you know footage of them hanging out together yeah so he he's always I just looked at
1: it as like,
0: like they photoreal they have a commercial
1: right. crew following them exactly. like, or like a hair product or something like it felt very like breck you know or whatever yeah. <laughs>
0: honestly so, Ella could be could be hawking some what was that wet and wild no there's like hair and mane mane and right. tail. That's
1: something it. i don't know i just that jumped out at me i was like in a he movie so that is old. so naturalistic the thing that feels least naturalistic is what is supposed to ostensibly be some sort of home movie that was clearly shot with a crew of twenty and possibly helicopters. Oh yeah, <laughs> like it just it struck me. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who's obsessing over this.
0: <laughs> and she does smile like she like it's about to say like Mentos, right? Like yeah. there's no way that like no Literally. one does that. No one does that. Like she stays in frame. No, like childhood. Like yeah, home movies are always a little too. Crazy. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, also, something futuristic uh, is when you watch the TV in the future. You got a big TV and you got three little ones on top with different. Like, yeah. TV. That's something we're gonna have. I don't know why we don't have that. I need more. I guess we. You know what, Brian? We do because whenever we watch TV, we have our phone and our iPad and our other screens around us anyway, don't we?
1: That's true, but we don't get different angles of the I same know. show.
0: I was really, I was really, you know, miffed about that. So my last question for you, with just about a minute left, Brian, is. You know, for the filmmakers out there, both documentarians and narrative. You know, I actually do both. Is um, what's the, what's a good lesson we can take away from this movie?
1: Um, from a filmmaking point of view. Yeah. I mean, I think I think don't be constrained by perceived genres.
0: Mm. You know,
1: you can make a action, a violent action movie that is also a a contemplative, meditative movie with a message um that relies on subtlety you don't have to conform to the stylistic requirements that you think a genre has to fall into um i think i think that's the takeaway
0: also trust your audience
1: trust your audience they will for the most part (laughs) they'll get it yeah. Um, so I think, I don't know, maybe that would be it. I don't make narrative films. So it's a little hard to say, you know, I'm always just like grab a camera and hope I get what I need to get. But, but I think, um, that's what I hope a lot of filmmakers would take away from this movie. Cause then I'll get to watch the kind of movies I like to watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, documentary is very different. You don't have the same control that they did over this. No, you know, they were able to shoot a lot. Well, Brian, this was absolutely wonderful. Where can we watch whatever you have coming out next?
1: Um, you can watch any of my documentaries on Amazon, uh, on all sorts of streaming services. Uh, not Netflix, not Hulu. It used to be on Hulu. Um, and our documentaries coming up, uh, I don't know yet. It's like we're, we're still in the thick of production. But Plastic Galaxy and Eye of the Beholder um, are both on Amazon's probably the easiest. And then the shows that I've worked on um, are all on Netflix. Movies That Made Us and Toys That Made Us. And mm-hmm. you should check out an upcoming series on History Channel called the Center uh, Center Chair, which is about the history of Star Trek. Well, um,
0: I know we have a lot of listeners. That's one so that I I, just, in that
1: show. I shot I shot some interviews on that. Um, that very is totally cool. a brainchild of Nacelle's um, owner uh, Brian Volkweiss. He is a deep nerd at heart, and he's definitely one of us.
0: Oh, well. Thank you for sharing this movie with me, Brian. And thank you for listening to They Came From Outer Space here on LP 97.3.